Okay, let's get started. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is episode number 273 of the John Riley Project. Welcome. Hey, we're going to be talking today about the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Here's the cover of the book right here by George S. Clayson. And there are so many great financial tips in this book, and we're going to go through some of these and kind of share our thoughts and comment on, there's a whole bunch of things we can comment that are going on in the world of, in the news and everything else. So I welcome your thoughts and comments as we talk about personal finance and some great financial strategies or tips that you learned when you were young, or perhaps like me, you learned them as you became an adult. Uh, welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Just type them in to uh, the comment section on both Facebook and YouTube, uh, on the John Riley Project Facebook page and YouTube page. And I'll see him here on the screen. We'll read your thoughts and comments on the air, and we will have a dialogue. So, you know, um, there's a lot going on in the world today. I mean, there's a really a lot that we could potentially talk about. I mean, today's Earth Day, right? You know, and I always talk about electric vehicles and solar, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, but, you know, that's a big part of Earth Day is, uh, you know, preserving our planet. There's a lot of activity going on with Earth Day today. Um, obviously, there's a ton of action in Ukraine and the, and the war that Russia has on Ukraine. There's a lot to comment on there. There's apparently Marjorie Taylor Greene is being, um, you know, question in a, in a court of law under oath, asking her questions about the January 6th attacks. I mean, there's a lot there, too. Um and, and actually, there's a Padre game tonight. I'm going to the Padre game. Um, they're playing the Dodgers and uh, really looking forward to that tonight. In fact, going tonight and on Saturday. So, I mean, there's really a lot to talk about. But I had sort of chosen this topic up front to go over the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, right here. And we're going to share some thoughts, some comments about this. So what this book is, and it's it's a classic financial um uh, a, fi- a finance book. And what it talks about is it talks in these parables of a- the ancient city of Babylon, right? Remember, the, it was one of the seven wonders of the world back in the day. They had the hanging gardens of Babylon. And back in the day, this was the wealthiest city on the planet. So what we did is in the richest man in Babylon, in the book, all kinds of great financial tips um, that are passed along in parables. And it's about this man, his name is Arkad, and he goes about, you know, sort of sharing his wisdom, sharing his knowledge with other adults, with other young adults, with um, teenagers to really teach them the fundamentals on how to earn wealth, how to grow your wealth, how to save your wealth, how to protect your wealth. So, just so many great comments and thoughts. So that's what we're going to get into today. Now, this book was first introduced to me, the, the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, from a friend of mine. I was over visiting um, his his family's house in Placentia up in Orange County, and his mother, um, you know, really was going off on this book, you know, The Richest Man in Babylon, and how it had so many great lessons. And this is a family that was fairly well-to-do. And my friend, you know, had been brought up in this family. And this is a family that was always very careful with their money and had, you know, built up a nice nest egg. And money was always sort of at the forethought, forth, how do you say that? The forethought of their thinking, um, almost to the point of almost being 
you know, sometimes a bit annoying. But then once I met his mother and understood how this friend of mine, this young man had grown up, I kind of began to to get it because I didn't get a great deal of financial education when I was a youngster. Um, so this was a big deal to me when this was first introduced. So The Richest Man in Babylon, this book by George Clayson, was something that I went out and bought and I read it probably in my late 20s is, is finally when I read this book and learned a great deal about it because, you know, where do we get our financial education from? They don't really teach it effectively in the schools. This is something that I always thought was really important to, to talk about personal finance, about how to not just, just manage your money on a monthly basis, but also how to save, how to invest, how to grow your nest egg. That's really not taught in the schools. It has to be self-taught. If you're fortunate enough to be born into a family where this is passed down from generation to generation, then more power to you. Uh, It wasn't a really big point of emphasis when I was growing up, so I had to learn a lot of this on my own. So in the book, Arcad talks about the seven cures for a lean purse. And so the 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 some of some of the dialogue in the book kind of has an old fashioned almost ancient uh, word usage, and so they talk about a purse, you know, because that's what they carried around in ancient Babylon. It was a little money sack that they would tie around their belt, and most of the adults at the time had very little. They reach into their purse, they might only have one coin. I don't know if they called it a shekel or a silver coin or a gold coin, but they had very little. So this whole book is really about how to grow your purse, how to generate money using these timeless financial management principles. So the first one of this is to to start your purse by fattening. (laughs) And so what this means is, yeah, how do you just begin the process of saving money? And so Arkad, who I talked about, he is the richest man in Babylon. um, He advises saving 10% of your annual income to start building up your wealth, or in this case, your purse. And his quote was, for every 10 coins thou placest within thy purse, take out, take out for use but nine. Thy purse will start to fatten at once and increasing weight will feel good in thy hand and bring satisfaction to thy soul. So what does this mean ultimately? It means to save 10%. At minimum, any for every dollar you earn, put 10 cents away. And this is just such a fundamental thing. Now, some people think, well, I can't save. I, I barely make enough money to get by. But in this book, they talk a lot about how if you just save 10% and live off of 90%, oftentimes you can't tell the difference uh, because you're, you will just naturally adjust to the 90%. But as you begin saving, you begin building your nest egg. So how is this done? Um, the way that I've been successful in, in doing this is just to set up automatic deduction. If you use that in your checking account, um, or perhaps you have an opportunity to do that in your paycheck with your employer, is just take 10% off the top every time and have it automatically go into a savings account. And then from there, you can move the money around as necessary and invest. And if you do that consistently, then you'll see your nest egg grow and grow. Now, 
The whole concept of saving is an interesting one because there are many different ways to look upon what savings truly represents. When I was growing up, a lot of times we would save money so we could actually buy something. You know, rather than buying it on credit, we pay for it in cash. But we put a little bit of money away with the goal of buying something that was important to us. But that doesn't build your nest egg. That just kind of changes how you redirect your money. You're still spending it. When I was young, you know, my mother taught me to save money, you know, for a rainy day. You know, when when you have an emergency, when you have a problem and you ha- need to have money to to fix something. You know, as an adult, when you have to fix your car or your water heater goes out or, you know, some emergency, you need to have cash on hand. And that's good, too. But still thinking in those terms is very limiting. Thinking in those terms is not about building your wealth. It's just sort of setting some aside that you're going to eventually spend because we always know there's a rainy day. But then there was a third way that I that I thought about savings. And I really came to this conclusion when I was in my 20s is that, oh, my God, I have to save for my retirement. Because, you know, I've been reading about Social Security and I can't depend on Social Security because in the year 2034, the Social Security Board of Trustees has said they are going to be unable to fulfill their promises. Now, where's that money going to come from? They're probably going to print more, cause more inflation. But the point is, is that I can't reliably count on Social Security. I need to save money for my retirement. And I had always thought of savings in those terms saving for a rainy day, saving to buy something in the future, saving for my retirement. And I realized as I got older is that I only had part of the story. I wasn't really thinking of savings in the right way. And, you know, I talk about this podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, savings is about freedom. Savings is about liberty. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you save money and you build your nest egg, then you can effectively trade money for time. I mean, and, and but what, when we earn our money, we usually trade time for money, right? We usually go to work, we earn a wage, make whatever we make an hour, 15 an hour, 20 an hour, 100 an hour, whatever it is. And we invest our time and we get paid. We trade our time for money. But as we build our nest egg and as our wealth continues to grow, we can then trade our money for time. So if we're able to save enough, then not only are we going to be able to retire when Social Security kicks in, but we're going to be able to retire even earlier than that and therefore buy more of our time buy more time for ourselves, which ultimately gives us the freedom to spend our, you know, to to focus on our own life, pursuing our own happiness. And so when I started thinking of it in those terms where building your wealth, it's almost like playing a board game where the objective is to earn more points, or if you're playing baseball, to hit more home runs or to score more touchdowns in football, and you keep putting points up on the scoreboard. And when I thought of wealth generation in those terms of as a means to 
have freedom and have independence at a later point in my life to be able to use those dollars to free me up. Another great example of this is as we're, you know, going through life and we we eventually buy a home and we, here we have a, a beautiful home here in Poway. We live on two acres of land, which is a lot of land. And we have over 50 avocado trees. All kind, I mean, I can't tell you how many sprinkler heads are on my property. I counted them once. It was over 200. It's insane. Um, there's how uh, to manage all that. I could certainly spend my time to do that. But what I've decided to do is to actually trade my money for time. And I hire a landscaper to do that work for me. So when I think of money and time as being interchangeable, then when you look at it from the big picture, saving for your retirement or even really just saving for yourself is how you can buy more time and then ultimately be able to do what you want with who you want, whenever you want, and with little regard to the cost. And isn't that ultimately freedom? So to me, this is a fundamental thing, is just automatically 10%. And if you can do more, do more. Um, you know, a lot of times companies have a payroll deduction plans for, uh, for 401ks and the like, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But make it a point to save. So that's rule number one in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, Start thy first, start thy purse to fattening. Okay, we are we are live streaming here, so I welcome your thoughts and comments. Feel free to type them in into Facebook or YouTube. I'll read them on the air. If you have questions, comments, if you have a financial lesson that you've learned in your life that you'd like to share, please list it, and I'll be happy to read it on the air. Okay. Um, the second cure for a fat. The second cure for a lean purse, okay? How do we fatten the purse? This is a pretty basic one, right? Control thy expenditures. Right. So just manage your money, manage your spending. Arkad, the richest man in Babylon, he said he advises against luxury expenditures that ultimately become confused as necessities. Yeah, isn't that true? As we, as we get older... Things that were luxuries when we were younger now become regular as we gain more wealth, and then we think of them as necessities, but they really aren't. Arkad says, the gold we may retain from our earnings is but a start, and what each of our calls are necessary expenses will always grow to equal our incomes unless we protest to the contrary. And he goes on to say... Confuse not the necessary expenses with thy desires. So, yeah. So this is all about controlling your expenses, going through your monthly budget, making sure that you're allocating your dollars properly and you're not, you know, essentially pissing some of your money away. I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I did that. Um, I was out, you know, most every night, out eating, out drinking, out having fun with my friends, but I wasn't managing my money very well when I was in my 20s. It wasn't until um, I became engaged to my wife and, you know, she kind of helped me ramp up my financial education. And we grew together on that particular point. So 
managing your money is the second way to do it, to control thy expenditures. And let me share a strategy that we've done in our, in our life. And I've talked about this before, but I think this is a really cool thing is we've set up our life where we, A, never buy gasoline for our cars, and B, we have virtually no electric bill with San Diego Gas and Electric. You're thinking, how in the hell is that possible? How can you not pay for gasoline, and how can you not pay for electricity? I mean, do you, do you think I live in the woods? Do you think I, I camp and I go hiking and that's how I get around? Because no, that's not what I do. So, what we've successfully done, I'm very proud of this, um, is we've not only put solar on our house and we have optimized it so that we, you, we use our, um, the most amount of our energy as we can between 12 and 6 at no, at in the middle of the night. So we, we program like our dishwasher and a lot of other appliances to work during those times so that we're pulling um, energy off the grid when it's cheapest. And during the day, when we are getting maximum sunlight, we're gathering as much of those photons as we can, converting them into electrons and sending them back into the grid. But we went a step further is now we have, well, we've had two electric cars now for close to 10 years. And those two EVs, we are able to power from the solar on our home. We never need gas. And... The way that we've optimized our electric bill with San Diego Gas and Electric, we never, well, not never, it's rare for us to have to pay money for electricity. In the summer months when we're using a whole bunch of AC, we sometimes have a bill. In other months when maybe we're not as careful with managing our electric usage in the house, we might have a bill. But in the end, it's so much less than San Diego Gas and Electric's electricity rates. After all, they're one of the highest, well, I think we have the highest gasoline prices in America and the highest electric utility prices in America. So right away, there, there's a strategy for you right there is you can eliminate gasoline, massively reduce your gas and electric bill just by putting in solar and switching to electric vehicles. And it's been a huge success for our family. And I, I can go on and on about EVs, but from a purely financial perspective, huge benefit. Not only that, we're getting subsidized. We're getting some of our tax dollars back to install the solar and getting our tax dollars back to acquire our cars. And there's all kinds of other financial benefits. When we're out on the roads, a lot of times there's free charging that's available to us. In fact, today is Earth Day. Electrify America is one of the high-speed charging stations. Today, charging is free. I can go to the Target here in Poway and park and go in and shop. I can charge my car for free. I can go to a lot of other places and charge for free. In fact, Caltrans is installing free electric vehicle charging stations in some of the rest stops in California. And I've used those. And if you know how to effectively play the game, you don't even have to pay for electricity when you're out on the road. I mean, we rarely ever spend money on electricity when we're charging at home. So, so many great ways to control your expenditures. You know, Pete kneeled on the live stream and he says, uh, my highest electric bill is at Christmas. Yeah, because pizza, they're in candy cane courts. When they are having the full electric uh, Christmas display, and you know Pete and his lovely wife uh, Wendy invited us over, and we toured that area. Crystal, I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, Candy Cane Courts, and I'll tell you that was spectacular. 
But yeah, <laughs> there's probably a lot of money being spent with SDGNE for that. Now, part of this podcast, I enjoy kind of commenting on politics and culture and a lot of other things. So let's take this just real quick and controlling thy expenditures. Let's look to the leaders in our country and do they set a good example. Before I do, I see another comment here for this one from um, Hiram Soto. And he says, I wonder if it's easier or harder these days to manage money when so many services are a la carte from car washes to streaming services to software and so many other things. Well, it depends on how you choose to manage your money. Now, going a la carte, like, for example, with your cable television, can be a massive savings. I mean, right now, we're still using Cox Cable for Internet and for television. And I would love to cut the cord for television, but I think that's the only way I'm going to get my Padre games. If I don't, if I, I have to either use Cox Cable or use DirecTV. But if, if I can find a way to stream the Padre games um, and cut the cord, I mean, we would eliminate $200 a month that we pay for television. And then we can choose five or six a la carte services and spend well under $100. The a la carte services is actually a great thing because you can pick and choose precisely what you want to use and not have to spend money on all the other stuff that you don't need or want. But it takes focus and due diligence to go through and make those choices and to manage your money appropriately. But it's true. You can have subscriptions so easy now with an app. You can subscribe to things and 10 bucks a month, 25 bucks a month being deducted from your checking account. That can, if you're not paying attention, that can add up. In fact, I know there are apps that exist where, uh, where they will actually tell you all the subscriptions you have. And then they will tell you which ones you're using and, and aren't using and then give you recommendations on which ones you can turn off. So there are apps that can help you manage that. But that's a fair question, Hiram. You know, people are spending money in different ways. It's not an all-inclusive bill. So, yeah. But in my opinion, the a la carte side of it is actually an advantage to buyers, provided that you manage your money proactively. If you're not paying attention, um, that could quickly turn into a negative. No doubt about it. But I did want to comment on this, is that when we're talking about controlling thy expenditures, right? Well, do our leaders in our country, do they set a good example at the local government level, at the state government level, and at the federal government level? Well, we can make all sorts of judgments at all three of those levels, and some do it better than others. But at the federal level, it's the most insane. It's the most out of control. And I was thinking, you know, there are, how much are we, we're now over $30 trillion in debt in this country, running deficits of well over a trillion dollars lately with the COVID bailouts, you know, multiple trillions of dollars. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat in office, there are still massive deficits. I mean, heck, even when President Obama was elected, you know, he took pride in cutting the federal deficit in half from over a trillion to somewhere around 500 billion 
but still 500 billion is insane amount of money for a deficit. And then he increased the deficit on his final years as president. And then Trump comes in the president, uh, the presidency campaigning that he was going to pay off the national debt in eight years. At the time was around what, 20 trillion or so. And his voters bought it. They, they, took the line, hook, line, and sinker. And what did Trump do? He started spending like crazy, racking up huge deficits, well over a trillion. And that was before COVID hit. And then it all went sideways. So our leaders just awful in terms of managing expenditures because they don't have to take responsibility for it. The politicians just can spend money to buy votes. And who ends up paying for it? We do and future generations do, but ultimately they don't. By handing out money, that helps them get votes. So it helps them, but it's certainly a terrible example, you know, for the rest of our nation. So I made a list, a short list of some things that I think the government should cut that I think are not necessary. They're luxuries or want-to-haves or abuse. And the first one are the wars. Now, thankfully, a lot of that's been downsized. Bravo. You know, the Iraq war, the Afghan war are supposedly ended, but there's still drone bombs dropping all over the Middle East and Africa. Um, You know, now there's a threat of potentially going to work in Ukraine. I mean, there's still the military industrial complex is spending insane money, not only defending America, but not only playing defense, but out there playing offense starting wars, creating chaos, and then on top of it, having military bases all over the globe that we're funding. To me, America should be focused on defending America, not defending the world. Um, But that's the role that the United States has taken. But it's costing us. I mean, the Defense budget is is like what about eight hundred billion a year? I mean, it's a massive amount of money. What else should be done? Ending all forms of corporate welfare. Oh my God! I mean, the subsidies that go to corporations is insane. And then during the whole COVID crisis, that became a cha-ching moment for a lot of corporations to be able to scoop up dollars to pad their bottom lines. That's a lot of the reason why some corporations had some of their most profitable years during the pandemic because of all the handouts that were given. But it's it's not just handouts during COVID. I mean, we saw all the bailouts in the Great Recession. We see all kinds of other subsidies um, where politicians are using that money to buy votes, to gain influence. Lobbyists from those companies are bribing politicians to regulate or to use subsidies for their benefit at the expense of someone else. And it's not just that. It's we see it in in agriculture. We see it in pharmaceuticals. I mean, we even see it with other things like public radio and Amtrak. I mean, we can go on and on all forms of various forms of corporate welfare. I mean, these are things that need to be cut from the budget entirely. Um And like even like take a look at remember in 2001 when George W. Bush was elected, both he and Al Gore campaigned to expand Medicare to provide um, to provide coverage for prescription drugs. Now, prescription drugs are insane expensive. And by providing that kind of coverage under Medicare, both Gore and Bush were really trying to get a lot of those seniors to vote for them. 
And ultimately, Bush won. And ultimately, they put in that package called Medicare Part D. But did they ever fund it? No. There was no corresponding tax increase on payroll deductions to pay for it. It just was added to the debt. It was just added to the deficit. And so it goes. And so who's benefiting from that? Well, yeah, sure, seniors are getting medicine for less. But in the end, Big Pharma is still getting the full insane retail price. It's just subsidized by taxpayers. So in the end, we're all paying for that. In the end, Medicare Part D is corporate welfare. But it's cloaked under the, uh, under the, uh, the program of Medicare, which makes it like a third rail that can't be touched. But that's another reason why we're going deeper and deeper into debt is because of the entitlements and they're not funded properly. Um, we could talk about uh, you know, the Department of Education. The education is a state and local issue. The federal government has no constitutional authority to do education. It's not outlined as one of the things that they're responsible for. Now, education is vital. Education is crucial. But education is really the role of state and local government. Now, I know here in our local school district, Poway Unified, the school district, roughly speaking, gets about 10% of their funding from the federal government. But if you ended the Department of Education, well, then these school districts would get cut budgets. And of course, that sets a lot of people's hair on fire. But in the end, it's really not. It's really not the role of the federal government to be in education. And frankly, for over 200 years, the federal government didn't have a Department of Education. It wasn't until Jimmy Carter in the late 70s. And I really liked Jimmy Carter, but I thought that was a mistake. That's something that should be cut. The whole war on drugs. Oh, my God. The war on drugs is insane. The war on drugs is is criminalizing medicine like cannabis. It's it's empowering the police that drives so much of this police brutality. People like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and countless others that have been killed by the police often are doing it under powers enacted by the war on drugs. So more and more spending to control drugs and, and, and to essentially empower the police to to uh, militarize the police and to create this massive incarceration state that costs insane dollars. The war on drugs is a colossal failure and all spending to that should be cut too. Um, I mean, we can go down the list. Arcad in the book, the, the Richest Man in the Babylon, got it right. That if you want to build your wealth, you need to control your expenditures. Now, the federal government doesn't need to build wealth, but the federal government definitely should break even um, and not create debt that is burdens uh, future generations. And that's what we have now. They set a terrible example. So I think it's it's worthy of mention that. I mean, there's all kinds of other nonsense, like the the dollars that Trump sped, uh, spent on the wars. I mean, sorry, not the, the dollars that Trump spent on the wall, not the wars, on the wall. I mean, we could talk about the Department of Commerce. That's all corporate welfare, just subsidizing companies to make their exported products less expensive to benefit those corporations. The Department of Commerce is all corporate welfare. That can be cut. Um, 
the NSA program that's illegally spying on us and our emails and our phone calls. Um, that's frankly a violation of the Fourth Amendment. That should be tossed out. Um, foreign aid. Oh my! Now, granted, it's a very small portion of the budget. That should be thrown out. I mean, and then if you look at Social Security disability, that's loaded with fraud, and that should be reduced too. So it's just a terrible example, just an awful example. So, okay, moving on. <laughs> Let's get back to the book. I'll still share my thoughts and comments about things in our in the current events as I go through this. I think it makes it more interesting. But that was rule number two in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. And uh, that rule was control thy expenditures. And Pete Neal chimed in there. Well, he, he said, well, there is one I can agree with. I assume you're talking about the war on drugs. Um, the other thing is, is when you cut a federal program, someone else loves that program, right? There's always a constituency with every program. But you, we can't be running these multi-trillion dollar deficits ongoing. It's just unsustainable. Um, and at some point, you know, the house of cards is just going to break. So – these leaders need to make the tough decisions to manage our nation properly. And they're not. But I would encourage you on the personal level to manage your expenditures as well as you can. Okay. The third rule in the book, where's my camera? This camera. Nope, that camera. The Richest Man in Babylon. It's a great book. It's not that. It's only like 140 pages. It's a really easy read. Great book. Can't recommend it. This is actually a really be a really good gift to a graduating high school senior or a graduating uh, college graduate to teach these lessons that are so valuable. The third one is the third cure to a lean purse is to make thy gold multiply. And Arkad, the richest man in Babylon, he advises to invest and to compound the investment return from these savings. The earnings it will make shall build our fortunes. Learn to make your treasure work for you. Make it your slave. <laughs> make its children and its children's children work for you. Of course, they, it's interesting they say make it your slave. But I get it. I get the point. I mean, back in the book, they talk about slaves, you know, which is a part of the, the, the reality of what happened in Babylon back in, you know, thousands of years ago. But uh, yeah, make, make your money work for you, you know, so... Put it into investments that are going to get you a return. Um, and I want to tell this story. And this is, to me, I, this is an amazing story. And as I was growing up, you know, I go to work for a large corporation. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, especially early 20s, you hear about the benefits package, right? And they're like, oh, we've got medical and dental. And then we've got, uh, you know, a pension and disability and life insurance and 401k. And at a certain point when you're like 23 years old, all you really care about is, okay, how much is in my paycheck? And, and you know, if I got sick, do I have health care coverage? When I was that age, I wasn't really paying attention to all the other benefits. Well, I started talking to the fine wife back then. She was my girlfriend and her employer offered it wasn't a 401k because she works for a nonprofit. It's a 403b, which is basically the same thing. It's a tax deferred savings account. And she had just be, uh, in, had engaged with a financial advisor who we still use to this day. And 
her financial advisor advised her to, you know, use this 403B program within the company. And so she started learning about it, talking to one other employee that actually had done it. And she then shared that knowledge with me. And she says, does, does your company have a 401k? And they did. And not only was this 401k available to us tax deferred savings, but the company matched dollar for dollar the first 4% of your savings. So if, if I saved, I'm going to make up a number, $400, okay, then the company would kick in an extra 400 and it would all go into my savings. And then not only did it match 100% on the dollar for the first 4%, but then it matched 50 cents on the dollar for the next 4%. So if I saved at least 8% of my money through the 401k program, I was maximizing the free money that I was getting from my employer that went into my 401k. It was ultimately 6% of my salary. And I saw this, I was like, oh my God, this is a no brainer. Not only can I save my money, automatic payroll deduction, so it's automatic, then I can put it into a tax deferred 401k plan, which will be good for my retirement. And the company is going to kick in money. It's like, this is obvious. This is easy. Now, the reason that my employer at the time had the match is because they used to have a pension. And, you know, a pension plan is one where you get a retirement income that's guaranteed, regardless of how successful the company is or how successful the investment strategy is of the pension fund, you got a guaranteed return. Which, if you have a pension, you know, bravo. I mean, pensions these days, uh, if you work in the private sector, pensions these days are, you know, mostly long gone. They still exist if you're a, if you're a government employee. But if you can get a pension, I mean, that's a sweet deal because all the risk is put on someone else. But really, it makes sense to me that the person doing the investing should also be the one that bears the risk. Um, so I've always thought 401k plans made a lot of sense, not only for the individual, it was rational and fair, but it was also rational and fair for the employer. And then if the employer was matching, you know, then great. So part of this story is, is that um, I was not only saving in this program, but I was maxing it out. I, at the time, I, I could only do 15% was the maximum that I could set aside. And I was doing 15% and then getting 8% free money, excuse me, 6% free money from my employer. And that was all going to my 401k. And that just started building, gaining compound interest. And it was all invested in, in very safe mutual funds that all you know, increased with the stock market throughout the 90s. And the 2000s, and it did really well. And I was talking with a friend of mine who worked in our data processing department, and he actually had to set up the software to do the 401k, to actually set it up. So if people decide how much to set aside, the it was an AS400, you know, a, a mid-range computer from IBM that was all custom programmed. And he actually did the custom programming to implement the 401k as part of the payroll system. And he said to me, he goes, did you know that I use you as my test uh, guinea pig for the 401k? I said, really? Why? He said, 
you are only one of two people in the entire company that max it out. There were, there are over 500 employees in our company. And I was one of only two that maxed it out. The other one was the president of the company. And I was like, really? So I kind of felt good about it. But on the other hand, I was thinking, I guess a lot of people aren't taking advantage of this much. I mean, certainly they're not maxing it out. And so I started talking with the employees in my department about it. And I said, are you guys doing the 401k? And they're like, well, what's that? You know, that's kind of how I was when I was 23. What's the 401k? And I explained it to them. And I said, you know what? If you go down to that HR office and fill out a form, you'll get free money. They're handing out free money. You can get a 6% bonus on top of your salary just by signing up. And they didn't want to do it. I said, why? He goes, because I can't afford to set aside any money. Now, this goes back to Arkad's rules in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. When you're in your 20s, are you living paycheck to paycheck? Yeah, you are. Do you have a lot of extra money? Probably not. But Arkad in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, he said that if you deduct 10% of your income from your paycheck, a lot of times you don't really feel the pinch. And on top of it, it's 10% off your gross, not 10% off your net. And so roughly speaking, if you figure about 20 to 30% of your paycheck is removed for taxes. Well, then you're only really feeling 70 to 80% of the 10% as quote unquote pain. And so it was remarkable to me. And I, I would be, I was becoming more financially educated and feeling really good about it, but I was just amazed at so how so few people were doing this. Now I do worry about them. Because as they get older and they have families and children, they may not make the adjustment. And then when it comes time to retirement, a lot of them aren't going to have anything. And Social Security doesn't provide enough for retirement. I mean, try living just on Social Security. What is that? Depending on who you are, maybe a couple of thousand a month, probably less. I mean, it's you can't live on that, especially in California. Um so I don't know. I, I, I always feel like there's a time bomb coming with essentially retirement when people that are like Gen X and later start retiring, because these are the generations that did not have pensions from their employers and probably did not have the financial education or the self-discipline to save. And I worry about that um, because I can see I can see it coming. So we'll see. But incredible um, that uh, a lot of people don't take advantage of the 401k. So to me, that's a if you've got that at your company, that's a, just an easy choice to make. Okay. So again, welcome your thoughts and comments. Type them in on the live stream on either Facebook or on YouTube. We're going to continue going down the road with the book, The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson. There's like seven really good lessons in here. We've already covered three of them. Um, but if you want to, you know, connect further, if you want to sign up for our mailing list, talk on social media, you want to find out about all the other podcast platforms we're on, you can go to my website, go to connectwithjohnny.com, connectwithjohnny.com. That's actually a page of my larger website, the John Riley project. But if you go to 
connectwithjohnny.com. There you'll see all the social media platforms we're on. I'm really active on Facebook and, and especially on Twitter. Um, so you can reach out to me, follow and subscribe, and we'd just love to continue the conversation there. Or if you want to get more information, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. If you want to, I have blogs, I have all the episodes posted up there. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can do that as well. So go to johnreillyproject.com and, and drop me a note. Pete Neal on the live stream chiming in. My 10% to me didn't start until I was 22. And I deployed for two months without any bills and subpay. And that is when I could afford the 10% from that point forward. So good on you, Pete. So you started saving at an early date. That's great. Um, now, granted, I would imagine, you know, you, you served in the Navy. And the Navy, I would assume, has a pension program and probably has a good discipline plan that encourages the, 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 the sailors or the troops to learn to manage their money. I would hope that's the case. But see, these are things that are not taught in our high schools or even, in our, at least for me, it wasn't taught in college either. I mean, these are such fundamental lessons that need to be shared and need to be, I mean, how many people don't go to college, right? I mean, at least half, if not more, of high school students don't go to college. This has to be part of a high school education, in my opinion. But they don't, you know. Instead, they they teach about the Pythagorean theorem, you know, like we need to calculate the, the, the length of a hypotenuse of a right triangle. Um, you know, th- this is the real deal. This is life. Okay. The fourth cure is to guard thy treasures from loss. So Arkad, the richest man in Babylon, advises against taking a risk of loss and investing in get-rich-quick schemes. It is wise to be intrigued by large earnings. When, that, when thy principal may be lost, I say not. The penalty of risk is probable loss. Study carefully before parting with thy treasure, each assurance that it may be safely reclaimed. Be not misled by thine own romantic desires to make wealth rapidly. And this is great advice. I mean, really good advice. So make shrewd financial decisions. In the book, he, he talks a lot about seeking advice from those that are knowledgeable with money. And, and in the book, there's a story that he tells where he had saved his money 10% for the whole year. And his friend was a bricklayer in the ancient city of Babylon. And he, his bricklayer friend said, hey, I can go to, well, what's, how do you pronounce it, Nineveh? which was another ancient city city in the Golden Crescent in the Middle East. And he says, I'm going to go and I hear I can buy these rare jewels. So this bricklayer had this idea to take money to this city and buy jewels. And Arkad, when he was young, he gave him his one year of savings of 10% of his income went in with his friend, the bricklayer to go buy this jewel, these jewels and come back. And they ended up getting taken. They got shafted. They came back with colored glass. And the point is, is why would you ever trust a bricklayer to help you with your finances and to decide on the best financial investments? So great stuff here. I mean, 
It's about getting sound advice from people that manage money. And if you're going to invest in a particular category, then it's best to get advice from people that are knowledgeable in that category. Ideally, only investing money in things that you actually understand. So good stuff here. So um, Arcad went on to say, gold flees the man who would force it to impossible earnings or who followeth the alluring advice of tricksters and schemers and who trust it to his own inexperience and romantic desires of investment. So, yeah, I mean, how many times have we seen get rich quick schemes? A lot of times, you know, they're advertised. Usually, I mean, almost always, that's, it's a, it's a load, you use a Joe Biden phrase, that's a load of malarkey. Because when you look at those that have invested, those that have been successful, they don't get successful from get rich quick schemes. And you might find one or two exceptions to the rule, but then, you know, there's thousands of people that lost all their money doing that way. So it's about making wise and prudent decisions with your money. Um, And this is another way to think of it. And I remember a friend of mine talked about this. We were, this is back when I was in my late twenties and we were talking about buying houses and we were both renters. We were both saving money to buy houses. And he said, it's interesting how people, when you're buying a house, now granted, this is when the median home price in San Diego was probably about $200,000 maybe even less. Um, He said, it's amazing how when you're negotiating to buy or sell a house, how quickly you can just make a decision on $10,000 or $20,000 in your negotiation, like it's nothing. But then he said, think about how long it takes to save $10,000 or $20,000. And, you know, back then in the mid 90s, that took a lot of effort to save 10 or 20%, you know, which is what we were trying to do to build down payments. So that's another way to think of this, to guard your treasures for loss. Because if you think about how much you actually have saved, I mean, think about how hard it is to do that, how much discipline it takes, how much long you've got to stick with it, makes it all the more important to make sure you're getting sound advice and that you're avoiding any kind of a scheme or a trickster and that you're making sound financial decisions, getting advice from people that know how to manage money. Pete Neal on the live stream. You have to retire with at least 20 years to get a pension. I did only nine. So yeah, that, that, that'd be like more than doubling your commitment. And I can understand why people in the military maybe don't want to be in the military for 20 years. Uh, that's a long time, especially when it takes you um, and deploys you overseas, or in your case, Pete, underseas. That could be very trying for a family. So it's difficult. Um, but pensions, very rare in the private sector now, mostly replaced by 401ks. I know there's a whole group of people that don't like 401ks, that think 401ks are a scheme. Well, those that are managing those mutual funds that are in 401ks. Yeah, they, they do make money, but they're rewarded when the mutual fund improves. And so their interests are consistent with your interests. And so I find it fine that professional money managers 
are managing my money and they have an incentive to do well. Um, But I look at how much wealth can compound over time. I mean, think about it. Think about how much debt can compound over time and that can add up in a hurry. Wealth compounds over time just the same. Um, So good lessons in here, very good lessons. But yeah, if you have a pension, you know, consider, consider yourself very fortunate. And that's one of the massive benefits that exists, particularly for local government employees. We're seeing that here in our uh, firefighters, police, teachers, you know, that especially like with firefighters, they'll work like massive overtime for the last two years of their employment so that they can spike their retirement so that they're getting massive salary and, or actually I should say massive wages in their final years. And then their pension is calculated off of that base. That's playing the game effectively. I tip my hat to them. Uh, Yeah. If you have a pension, consider yourself thankful. If you don't have a pension, get with the program and sign up for a 401k. Okay. Um, The fifth cure in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon Make thy dwelling a profitable investment. Arcad advises buying versus renting your principal residence and to use your residence to establish a business. I recommend that every man own the roof that sheltereth him and his, and nor is it beyond the ability of any well-intentioned man to own his own home. Well, Arcad's never bought real estate in Southern California. Um, it's hard to buy property here, especially if you're a, a first-time home buyer. It's difficult. It's frankly insane, the home market here right now. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about housing as a crisis in America, in California, in San Diego, even in our hometown of Poway. And right now they're building a lot here in my hometown of Poway. And it's making a lot of people angry because they don't like the change. But we need to build a lot more homes so that homes can become more affordable so that supply can increase to begin to potentially meet the demand. And so we can see a sort of relaxing of home prices. Now, other people think we need to have more government programs to subsidize um, affordable housing, whether it be subsidized by taxpayers or subsidized by other homeowners who end up paying even higher prices to developers so the developers can fund a portion of the development for low-income people. Is that right? It's not how I think it should be done. In my opinion, we need to increase supply. But it's a real problem. It's very hard to buy a home in California. I mean, prices are insane. Um, Pete kneeled on the live stream. Now, sw- Pete, you're switching between Facebook and YouTube on your comments. You asked me, what are your thoughts on stock option plans on startups, joining a company, uh, but not a founder? Well, first of all, I'll say this. Um, it's the only way, the only ways to really become, in my opinion, fabulously rich is you have to, 
you know, not counting winning the lottery, <laughs> is that if you go about earning a wage, having a good, solid career, making a strong income, saving your money, following these principles of the richest man in Babylon, you will become wealthy and you will do well in life. And if you happen to have an income from a job that pays you very well, you'll do exceptionally well if you manage your money properly. But the only way, at least as far as I know, with rare exception, to become fabulously wealthy is to own a business or happen to have shares in an early startup business and then to see that business grow exponentially and then get massive leverage from your investment in the company in the early years. There's a lot of people that I know, Pete, that have made a ton of money on stock option plans and have been involved in startups. But I also know a lot of other people that have gone to business for these kinds of startups and gotten nothing because the company ended up going bankrupt. The stock options are very attractive, but they are no guarantee. But if you have an opportunity, if you're making a shrewd investment, if you because you're ultimately investing your time, you're getting paid a salary, but the other part of your compensation are these, are these um, stock options. Well, that's a, another form of your compensation. You're putting in your time for that compensation, so you have to be shrewd about choosing the right company to work for, ensuring they have a solid plan. And if you can't find a company that does, then perhaps it means creating your own. But even then, that's not easy either. Um, it's funny. I had a friend of mine in college who uh, this dude was like Jeff Spicoli, man, he, from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. This guy just kind of cruised through college. He was a surfer. He was a stoner. He lived with me for like about six months uh, at one point during college. This guy ended up getting in, in on one of the early um, Internet startups in the late 90s. And the dude is loaded and he hasn't worked in over 20 years. He got in on the right opportunity and hit the jackpot. Good on him. But sometimes it seems that people, some people fall into it, fall into it. But I would imagine he's still this guy, he, even though he was a surfer stoner dude like Jeff Spicoli, he was very smart. And he was not only hired by this, by this company in the early tech days in the 90s, well, the early, I should say the early internet days of the 90s, he chose the right company to work for. And the company chose him because of his intelligence, his skills, and what he brought to the table. But yeah, there are a lot of people that have done that. I remember also here in Poway, um, we went and did a tour. It was called like the Poway Houses of the Stars Tour or something like that. And it was a lot of the homes that were built in the Heritage, which is this really high-end development in North Poway where a lot of professional athletes live now. Um, and the real estate company were charging money for people like us, middle-class family to go up there and tour it. And we happily paid. I think it was like, I don't know, 10 or 20 bucks ahead. And they had a row of about eight of the homes and they were all furnished and they were just incredible. And the whole time we were there, I mean, these granted, this was again in the late nineties, early two thousands. No, it's actually in the late nineties. And these homes were 
back then like one or two million dollars, which nowadays doesn't sound like as much. But back then it was like crazy. It was like five, six times the median home price. A lot of them were even more than that. And we said, who's buying these? I mean, obviously some professional athletes are, but the other people who were buying them were, were Qualcomm millionaires. That's what they called them. They worked for Qualcomm. They had those shares and they were able to cash in. Um, and good on them. I mean, I have another friend of mine worked for Qualcomm and did the same. And he's an attorney. He was doing patent law for Qualcomm. He's done very well. He got in with Qualcomm in the 90s, rose the ranks, became a fairly senior executive, and then had all that, those stock options available to him. So he, uh, he again, he's done very well. Um. Pete Neal saying, yeah, YouTube and Facebook, I support your tech. You do both. Nothing is wasted on me. I use both. Well, thank you, Pete. Okay, let's keep on moving. Um, And where are we? Well, yeah, this is, we're now on uh, the sixth cure for a lean purse. And this is in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. Again, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's a great book and it's an easy read. It's kind of a fun read because it's, you know, it's presented during ancient times in the city of Babylon. And, you know, you're, you're hearing stories from, from tradesmen and farmers and merchants and kings and slaves and, and, and sort of like the aristocracy and the, and the, you know, like I said, the merchant class, the business class, all kind of interesting people in ancient times. Now, it's obviously put in a parable. Apparently, this book was based on some clay tablets that they actually found in a real archaeological site that showed like balance sheets and debts for different people in the city of Babylon. And that was the basis for this book. But the sixth cure for a lean purse is to ensure a future income. Arcad the richest man in Babylon, advises on having a pension and future retirement income. Therefore, do I say that it behooves a man to make preparations for a suitable income in the days to come. And when he is no longer young and to make preparations for his family, should he no longer with them to comfort and support them? So yeah, it's to, it's to ensure a future income. Now, there are a number of ways to do this. I mean, one way that we're doing, and I know a lot of you are doing, is that we're saving, you know, for our retirement. Because we know that when we stop working our day job, we're going to still need an income to fund our lifestyle in our late 60s and our 70s and hopefully well beyond that. Because Social Security isn't going to cut it. It just won't. So having the pensions, having the savings is so important. You know, investing in your home is a big part of your nest egg. But your home alone with Social Security still probably not enough. You need to save even more. So one of the things that we've done that has been extraordinarily successful for us is that, and I mentioned this earlier, is we have a financial planner that helps us. And this is actually someone my wife met back when, before we were married, and she went to a seminar and it was hosted at Miracosta College in Cardiff-by-the-Sea. And this particular financial advisor, she was a young woman, 
about the same age as my girlfriend at the time. And she was starting up her practice and she taught a class and it was all about financial management for women. So it was a class that catered to women. It was kind of interesting. But for the financial planner, this became a great lead generation uh, program for her business because my wife signed up with her. This is before we got married. And eventually, you know, I joined the deal. And, and here we are. And our financial advisor has been incredible, has made wonderful recommendations for us, not only in the money that we are saving that she is helping us manage, but also in the money we are saving that is in our 401ks or 403bs that are outside of her ability to manage that money. She still gives us guidance and advice. She will check on us to make sure we're making good choices, that we're budgeting properly. And she'll help us do forecasted models about what our income can be like based on our current savings, based on Social Security as it exists, and then be able to project if we're going to have enough money to live a lifestyle that's similar to what we're living now and for how many years we can sustain that. And then hopefully we don't outlive our savings, right? So she's helping us manage that as well. And it's been great. And the coolest thing is, is that remember I told you this book, The Richest Man in Babylon, I learned about it from a college friend's mom and I went out and bought it. Well, when we were doing business with this financial planner and one year she was handing this book out to all of her clients. And in fact, here on the inside, if you can see this, but she has written us a nice little letter and signed it. And it's cool. So this book is a classic. I mean, it's like uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. It's like a really good book. And she provided it as a, as a gift but it was also consistent with the principles she was teaching us, but put into a story, into a fictional form, into an entertaining way to learn these lessons. And I just thought, man, that is, I'm a marketing guy. I'm thinking that's, a good, that's good marketing. That's good marketing to demonstrate that you get it, to demonstrate that you care for your customers and that you're advising them properly. Um, and creating customers like us that make us so excited that we can't help but tell other people about our financial advisor. So it was brilliant. So the final cure, the seventh cure for a lean purse is to increase thy ability to earn. So Arkad, the, um, the richest man in Babylon, he advises to keep developing your own skills to increase your investing wisdom and also to increase your earnings power. The more of wisdom we know, the more we may earn. The man who seeks to learn more of his craft shall be richly rewarded. So there's a lot of different lessons in it. This particular message is increase your ability to earn. Yeah, for sure. Make more money, you know, work to increase your salary, whether you're going to get it from your current employer or whether you need to hop to another employer to increase your value and to increase your, your, um, your compensation. But there's another part to this and it's to constantly be increasing. You know, he says the man who seeks to learn more of his craft shall be richly rewarded. So 
ultimately that means is to invest in yourself, is to always be increasing your skills so that you can create more and more income, so that you can be more valuable to your employer because you have new skills to bring to the table. There's another part to this as well, which I encourage and which I try to do in my business is to have multiple streams of income. You know, when you're working for an employer, when you have a job, you only have one stream of income. It's for that job. And if you lose that job, you ain't got no income. Um, But if you're able to have a day job and then have a side hustle or some innovative online business that you've built, you can generate more money. You can have an additional income. Or if you choose to go into business for yourself, which is a path that I've taken, and it's a path that I encourage people that believe in themselves, that want to take a risk and kind of bet on themselves and see tremendous opportunity out there. Going into business for yourself is fantastic, especially when you can have a range of clients that you're doing business for so that you are generating multiple streams of income. Now, of course, then if the business grows and you're creating more and more products and services, reaching more and more customers, you keep increasing all of those channels of income that keep flowing in. When you're working for an employer, that's hard to do. But you still may have a good job, a good job that pays well. You might be investing, hopefully using a 401k or have a pension, a 403b if you work at a nonprofit. But always having that side hustle, I think, is great. I mean, that's why I'm a big believer in contract contract work. That's why I was really down on the whole idea of making Uber and Lyft drivers and DoorDash drivers kind of coming down on them, forcing them to be employees rather than contract workers. Because the whole idea of contract work is, you know, it's like a side hustle. It's something that you can use to supplement your day job. If you are really successful at it, it may be something that you can use to replace your day job. I mean, because for contract workers, and there's been a lot of them that have come forward as this COVID pandemic has, has hit. And the people doing contract work are discovering that they can make two times, three times, four times their hourly rate than they did when they were an employee. They make more money as a contract employee by huge amounts. Why? Well, number one, the company doesn't have to pay benefits. You have to pay your own benefits, but that's doable. And if you're fortunate enough to be married and your spouse already has a benefit package, then bonus. But as a self-employed person, as a contract worker, you can be dismissed at any time at a drop of a hat, of a snap of a finger. You know, with California labor law, you really can't. I mean, it, there's a process that has to happen, you know, provided there isn't some egregious violation. Um, it's, and depending on where you work, it can be very difficult to fire people. But if you are a contract employee, you're kind of giving up a lot of that. Now, some people think that that's really important. That's employee labor law that works on their benefit. And I get it. I understand it. But if you believe in yourself and you know that you provide tremendous value, that it would be incredibly unlikely that you would ever be fired because you provide such awesome value 
then you're going to make way more money as a contract worker. And then I think you have an opportunity to generate multiple streams of income. And it's, that's worked for me. It's been very successful for me. Um, and, you know, I, I try to do more of this. I mean, you know, one of the things that I'm dabbling with for me is this John Riley project. I'm always trying to figure out ways. How can I monetize this? And so I've built out some e-commerce sites. Like if you, I've talked about one of them. It's called happiness76.com. You know, I, I talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness all the time in this podcast. I said, I'm going to create an e-commerce store that's all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's called happiness76.com. And you can go there and, and I've got a bunch of like t-shirts and coffee mugs, different things that I've created. In fact, uh, created one shirt called Corvette Happiness and Pete Neal purchased the shirt from happiness76.com. Thanks, Pete. But that was actually a shirt that featured his car, Calypso. Um, speaking of Calypso, Pete says, you know, he's using both Facebook and YouTube. He says, and Facebook is better than YouTube on the closed captioning, whereas YouTube better audio. I can polish Calypso during the, bo- during the, pro- the podcast. So good on you, Pete. Um, so yeah, so increasing your ability to, to earn, you know, to create multiple channels of income, but more importantly, investing in yourself. That's another reason why I started this podcast is that I wanted to learn about the technology and I'm still learning. I'm getting better. If you notice, like I'm using multiple cameras now and I got this camera switcher, but I still haven't optimized my cameras, especially my GoPro, which is this one right here. I've got to optimize that one a little better. The colors are, the light is streaky, but I'll figure that out. Um, but for me, this podcast is just one of many examples where I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to grow and I'm trying to make my skills more marketable, more relevant for our current and future realities. Because I've been in the world of marketing, you know, for now, for most of my career, not all of it. I was in the computer industry for uh, the early part of my career. Um, but, you know, the marketing industry is massively evolved. And if you don't move with the times, you get left behind in a hurry. And so uh, I found myself kind of getting stuck in old technology, old ideas. And I, I'm doing this partly to push myself to learn more, to develop skills, to help my clients use audio, use video, use podcasting as ways that my clients can reach larger audiences to market their own products and services. And it's been helpful. I'm already helping a lot of my clients with their social media strategy and a lot of other things that we're doing. And I've been able to be of greater value as a consultant to my clients because of the things that I've learned doing this podcast. And I feel really good about that. So I would encourage you to do the same. Now, there are companies out there like Skillshare.com. If you ever heard of them, they have a whole library of classes and it's all online learning. It's all digital learning. And you can learn about all kinds of unique skills or trades in an online class that is extraordinarily affordable. These classes are only like, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks for a course where you can learn a ton. Now, for me, learning to do podcasting, I just spent a ton of time reading websites, going on YouTube and watching videos, learning from other people, 
And I kind of just did it sort of grassroots. But I'm so much more knowledgeable on this. In fact, if you go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, I have a journal there. And in my journal, I talk about the early days of the podcast and how I went about starting it. Now, I need to write another entry in that journal to talk about this multi-camera thing that I'm doing um, because I'm learning more about it. But I want to share the knowledge that I have with you to help you be better. And that's part of the reason I'm, I'm doing this book review of The Richest Man in Babylon. This book was very helpful for me. And it has greatly helped me. It has helped me understand personal finance so much better. And it's, they're really just simple ideas. And we've heard these ideas throughout our life, but to see it presented in a comprehensive package and presented in a beautiful story that's fun and entertaining to read, but still delivers those timeless principles of personal finance. And it's great. So what what did we learn today in the seven cures for a lean purse? The first cure is to start thy purse to fattening. That means save at least 10% of your income. The second cure is to control thy expenditures. That means to understand what's really necessary and what's a luxury and to make sure that you're eliminating the luxuries so you can ensure that you're saving at least 10%, if not more. The third part of this is, is to make thy gold multiply, is to invest it. You can't put it in a savings account, right? What are savings accounts paying? Like like one one hundredth of a percent? I mean, it's insane how low it is. Now, the rates are going up, but still, savings doesn't do what you need it to do. You need to invest your money in very sound uh, investments that are going to make your money work for you. If you have a 401k, you can do that. Even just putting your money in a um, an index fund that follows the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, you know, those index funds usually do pretty well if you're not sure where to put your money. Um, But make your money work for you. The fourth cure is to guard thy treasures from loss. Make wise decisions. Invest in things that you understand or consult and hire people that understand how to manage money and let them guide you. But don't get financial advice from a bricklayer, like what happened in the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. And there's another part to this that we didn't talk about, you know, in terms of guarding thy treasures from loss, is to make sure you have life insurance. We had life insurance all throughout the time when we had our children living with us. And it has since expired. I think mine might still have a couple of years left, um, but it is mostly expired because that was the real fear is that when we were in our 30s and our children were like infants and if one of us was gone, it would put this massive burden on the other spouse because we didn't want to have them lose everything. Um, so we, we got life insurance. That's another great way to protect your, your treasures from loss. Um, the fifth cure, make thy dwelling a profitable investment. It's to own your home rather than renting. Owning your home in California is hella hard. Uh, But maybe that means moving to another part of the country where you can't afford a home, especially if you're a first-time home buyer, and getting started there, and then working your way up, and then maybe eventually being able to return to San Diego or return to San Francisco or where we happen to be from. Uh, But getting a first-time home buyer in this area is just crazy difficult, but you have to find a way. Uh, to buy a house because then that house becomes an investment and provides countless 
financial benefits like writing off your mortgage interest, et cetera. And if you happen to have your own business and you run it out of your house, then you can deduct portions of your mortgage and other expenses as a deduction in your business. There's a lot of advantages you can take, you can take there. The six cure ensure a future income, you know, that's saved for your retirement. And then finally, the seventh cure increase your ability to earn. Always seek higher salaries, better jobs, grow your skill set so you're more marketable, more valuable. And if you have an opportunity, is to create multiple streams of income, either in the form of side hustle or in the form of starting your own company. Um, Pete Neald on the live stream got a couple of comments here. Um, oh, this is from Yuri. Uh, and he says, uh, Pete is right. The audio is better on YouTube. Facebook feels like a dub movie. So it's like a, maybe it's like Godzilla. <laughs> uh, those old Godzilla movies. Um, now that's a good question. Uh, I, cause I'm wondering, cause I'm having my three cameras all going through my video switcher. And then that is going into my laptop on a USB connect and sort of behaving like a webcam. Then my computer is hardwired to Cox cable. But, you know, video is a lot of data, a lot of bandwidth. So I'm wondering if that's playing a role. But then if YouTube is okay, but Facebook's not, then maybe the problem is Facebook. Interesting. But thanks. I appreciate that feedback. If there's other feedback that you're noticing in the video or in the audio, let me know because I'd like to know because I, I want to keep improving this. And there's definitely certain things I need to do to make these cameras a little bit better. So especially that that camera, the the GoPro, which is really good, but I still need to kind of optimize that one. Um, Pete Neald on the live stream says, sorry for the delay on this comment. Thanks for the clarification on podcast and happiness 76. I, of course, would have liked happiness 74, Calypso's number, but I understand and I'll explain it to Calypso in due course. So yeah, happiness 76 is because 1776, you know, by the way, this is always a good trivia question. Two great things happened in 1776. And most people know the first one. That was the creation of the United States of America. A country was founded on the moral principle that you own yourself, that you have individual rights, that you have an inalienable right to your life, your liberty, and your happiness. And at the same time, it declared that all of us are created equal, that we really should be equal under the law. Granted, our founders didn't implement that right, but we are eventually getting better at it. But those are still just timeless, wonderful philosophy. But what's the other thing that happened in 1776? Well, talking about free market economics, Adam Smith, that's when he wrote Wealth of Nations, which was one of the biggest groundbreaking books in economics at the time, all part of the Age of Enlightenment that was consistent with our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was all part of the, the evolution of human civilization, and which has made our world better. So I call the website happiness76.com to pay homage to 1776. And then indirectly, kind of a only thing that's special to me, is I remember when I was in the sixth grade, that was the bicentennial year, and we had those quarters, those bicentennial quarters that said 1776 and 1976. And I still remember them to this day. 
So 76 has always stuck with me. And I guess there is also the gas station, right? What's it called? Union 76? So anyways, that's always been something I've remembered. All right. So uh, we're going to close now. You know, I want to encourage you, you know, manage your money well. Get this book. Here it is, The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Mason. This is a great gift for a, a graduating um, high schooler, a graduating college student. It's a great gift for a lot of people. Um, it's a great gift for yourself um, to learn these timeless principles. And if you're not learning them in your 20s, maybe you're learning them in your latter years. There's no time like the present. Um, so I would encourage that. And tonight, I'm going to go to the Padre game, and uh, they're playing the Dodgers. So looking forward to that. I'm actually going with my client. My client has a suite at Petco. And so um, I'm going to be there. Some people that are suppliers for my client. My client is going to be there. It's probably going to be about 25 of us up in a suite at Petco Friday night. Padres Dodgers starts at 640. I'm leaving here at about 5 o'clock. Try to get down there and park, get to the game. And then I'm going to crash tonight. And then the fine wife and I are going on Saturday. So I'm going to like a double whammy here. Padres Dodgers. going to be a great weekend. Rooting for the Padres to be successful. And I hope you are as well. So um, this is the John Riley Project, episode number 273. We're three away from 276. Uh, so looking forward to coming back at you. Happy Friday to you all. Have a great weekend, and we will see you later. Oh, but before we do, do we have any more comments? No, that exhausts our comments. But thanks again, everybody. Thanks, Pete and Yuri, for following. And Yuri, another great show. John, when is your next show? Uh, I'm going to – I'm. I've been sidetracked. I'm trying to get back on my Wednesday rhythm. Um, but I had, like, dental issues earlier this week that threw me for a loop. Um, I had to get three crowns in a row, boom, 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 in my upper right. And I was feeling it earlier this week. It kind of threw off my whole schedule. Everything phase shift by two days. So instead of be being with you Wednesday, I'm here on Friday. I'm going to try to get back on track with Wednesdays and try to get back to a weekly rhythm. I've got some new ideas on things that I'm trying to do with the podcast. So that'll all be part of the plan. Uh, but in the meantime, seek me out. It's it, I'm always going to do it at 2 o'clock. And I'm also trying to set up um, – I've already gotten verbal commitments from Lee Hacksaw Hamilton – you know, the franchise in sports talk radio, he's agreed to come on the podcast. We're trying to set up a time and date to do that. Uh, Pete Murray, who's running for judge here in San Diego County, he has agreed to be on the podcast. We're trying to set up a time for that. So I may have some podcasts with guests that may or may not be able to fit with my Wednesday at two o'clock schedule. So those will sort of be ad hoc as they come. And I'll do my best to promote them so you're aware of them and so you can tune in at the time and ask questions of my guests. So that's my plan. Um, Yuri, I know you're, I assume, going to be a candidate for mayor in the city of Poway. You are always welcome to join me here for a podcast conversation. And I'll have you sit down right over here in one of our chairs and we'll move the cameras around and make it right so we can feature you and and really, you know, do what we can to promote your message. Uh, <laughs> uh, the question here is, is that the same judge who violated the sign ordinance? I don't think it is. Um, 
I've been seeing a lot more campaign signs around. The You'll see that there are some people that are hired by candidates that go out in the middle of the night and will take the signs with a little post and, and then tape them way up on light posts. And they're like the long, wide, vertical sign or horizontal signs. And you'll, I've been seeing those now. Those are huge violations of sign codes in San Diego and much less Poway. Um, and I've seen a lot of judges doing that. That's probably the one I'm thinking about. And uh, uh, But the guy that, um, that I'm talking about is Pete Murray. And Pete is a guy that I've known for a very long time. Uh, he was a coach at Poway National Little League back when I was a coach and back when I was the president of the board there. He's a great guy. He's been on this podcast two or three times. Great guy. He lives down the street from me. So uh, hoping to have him on, on the show. And then Yuri Bolin says, uh, yes, my official announcement will be on your show. Well, thanks for informing me, Yuri. Um, I would be honored if you made your f- official announcement on the show. So whenever you want to schedule that, we'll, we'll do it. We'll schedule it in advance so you can promote that and have some of your fans and followers and supporters uh, participating in the live stream with questions. And we can make this kind of a fun event for you as well. And by the way, that invitation is open to all political candidates, whether you're in my hometown of Poway or whether you're running for Congress or whether you're running for the Board of Supervisors or if you're running for President of the United States, I'd be honored to have you on this podcast because having political candidates provides so many jumping off points to have really interesting conversations about what's going on in our world, the best ways to structure society and our economy and and to to talk about solutions to make our world better. So I'll always look forward to that. And yeah, thank you, Yuri. And, and uh, I appreciate you. Okay, friends, that concludes it. I need to kind of get my podcast uploaded so I can be out the door at five o'clock to go to the Padre game. And um, until then, friends, we'll see you later. This is the John Riley Project, episode number 273. Happy Friday, y'all. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.